0: 80% is the number. When you're ready to quit, you're really at 80% of your capacity. Mm. Um, Most people, when their body is telling them to shut down, I can't do this anymore, you're actually, like, realistically, physiologically at 80%. You still have 20% in the tank. Welcome to the Conduit Deeper Podcast a podcast that takes a deep dive into the details that surround our current sermon series. From current events, to fascinating finds, to conversations that take us deeper into the word. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to our Deeper Podcast. My name is Mo, campus pastor at Conduit Church, joined with our lead pastor, Darren Tyler, after a bit of a hiatus. A month, man. It's been a month. I knew it had been a few weeks. We apologize. But, man, we've had a few things going on, right? So, obviously Thanksgiving, which we could have done one Thanksgiving week. Um, well, we planned to until I got, yeah. like, the flu. Yeah, you got you got hit pretty hard, uh, which lasted a couple weeks, which is uh-huh. why we, we couldn't really get behind a microphone with uh, all the ho- uh, hacking and coughing and sneezing and runny noses. Yeah, the amount of editing Micah would have <laughs> had to have done to, to pull that off. Yeah, oh. and... Oh. Uh, then you had the opportunity to, uh, to lead Devo at Mr. Ramsey's place um, a couple weeks before that. So it's just been a busy, busy yeah. few weeks. But we had, yeah, it made
1: us miss last week. And so here we are. Catching up. Uh, catching up. And, Episode and s- 99. <clears throat> 99. We got 99 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and this ain't one. Yeah. yeah. And in between them, we also, uh, it was kind of fun last week. We had Selah at the church as a concert, which. Mm -hmm. Was kind of fun for me because it was a bunch of our music business friends that kind of sashayed in here for the night. Which, if you've been around us uh, here, you know that Mo and I both have that background. But we really are—we're not a music business church. And so, you know, when you have an event like that, some of you know some of the seasoned veterans show up, and so that was kind of fun. It was fun to watch people recognize you. Because it's been 10 years since i eight, eight, years eight years since I jumped yeah. the ship. Yeah. So watching him, oh, Moe. Like, uh, Tony yeah. Johnson, Brian Myers. Like, uh, they actually have their own agency now, but they represent uh, Michael and DC Talk and Amy. And I guess they were op- representing the opening act of that, which means they must be excited about her because they came out for the opening act.
0: Yeah, that was cool. So Moody Radio put on a Christmas concert uh, with Selah and, um, asked us to host it here at our building. And so it was kind of a kickoff to Christmas. Um, and it was, yeah, it was great. It was seeing, you know, it's the first night of a tour, which, you know, as artist managers, we, we know that we use that night to kind of tighten the screws for the rest of the run. Yeah, And it's a, it's a glorified rehearsal in Uh a lot of ways. Um, and so, yeah, so we were we were glad to be able to to host that and see a lot of those those guys and those friends from years past. Did you when
1: they did the Twyla Paris medley? <laughs> I knew all the songs. Did you see? So that's what I was going to say. Like you shouldn't because you grew up. Oh no, well, too no. late for that. But the church you were in, were they playing Twyla songs?
0: It was the church right after the church that I grew up in. So like when we. For lack of a better word, when we defected from, the, uh, that's probably the right word. Independent Fundamental Baptist Church that I grew up in, like the church right after that started playing real edgy music, like Twila, like Twila
1: Paris. Oh, that's hilarious! <laughs> like cutting edge stuff. Because to put that in perspective, by the oh, time man. you had done that, like Third Day was a was a band by then. Like churches right. were doing Third Day songs by right. then, and you guys were doing Twila, and that was cutting edge. Took a while to catch up, but I mean, I v- eventually caught up. That's funny. I, it triggered me a little bit because I had the chance to represent Twyla in the 90s. And and by the way, she's a lovely human being. She and Jack live out in like Fort Smith, Arkansas or uh, somewhere out in Arkansas. And, and basically, she gardens. And then in those days, she would tour like once every 18 months or two years because she didn't have to because the Baptist hymnals, man, yeah, like she, CCLI before that was a thing. Dude, in that day... If you got your song put in a baptist hymn book Mm. it was hundreds of thousands of dollars and she had if i remember right at the time she was like uh, as far as a a living person she had the most published songs in there wow of any living artist and so that yeah when they're doing those songs i was like oh man i remember i remember that because i remember thinking Uh, she's this lovely human, but I wasn't driving home listening to Twyla. Like, we weren't doing Twyla songs at the church I, I had attended. and uh, this, you know, so, so I wasn't exactly fired up to book Twyla because I was passionate about her music. But it, uh, anyway, it just reminded me of how, actually, she had literally written the soundtrack of the 80s, which you guys caught up with in the 90s. But the that's rest right. of us were in the 80s were singing Yeah,
0: I mean, I guess that's kind of true across the board. Uh, living in Dayton, Ohio, we were always a decade behind. Honestly, that's still true today. <laughs> mm. It's bizarre. Like when we go back home for holidays or what have you. Um, Interesting fashion, the music, the the song the kids are kind of listening to or whatever. It's it's minimum five years behind. Fascinating than what we're experiencing here in Nashville as far as a trend is concerned. Whether it's like even like drinks or like things that are trendy, or they're about five years behind. So, so it's the confusing. internet didn't help that. It sped it up from 10 years behind. Oh, right. okay, so it did help. <laughs> but still, it's just, it's a, it's it's weird. Huh. Yeah. So music-wise, yeah, I mean, it, <clears throat> it was one of the reasons I wanted to get to Nashville so badly, I think, uh, as a young man. I wanted to be on the cutting edge yeah. of, like, the, the newest, the freshest thing. So, like, when Jars released, like, it blew my mind that that was... How that old was, were you when Jars came out? Oh, I don't, I don't want to know this. Yeah. I was, I was 17. Okay, that's not as... Well, It's not great. It's not as bad as I was thinking. But, but. man, it, it it changed the trajectory of my
1: life. So that was 94, 95. You're talking about the self-titled record or the frail record? No, the self-titled record, I guess that
0: would have been like 96, 95, 96. Because I, so I, I was 15, 16, okay. yeah. 15, 16. That's true. Yeah, 15, 16 years old is when that hit. And, man, I... I read the liner notes and started a piece together that, man, this thing was recorded and promoted in this little town called Franklin, Tennessee. Like uh-huh. I need to
1: find this on a map. I need to get there. So you would have probably seen Robert Beeson's name in there? Yeah, of course. Essential yeah, yeah. recordings. Yeah. A, uh, Ballou, what was his name? Aaron Ballou? Adrian Ballou. Adrian, yeah.
0: Yeah, producer. <clears throat> and so like, I, literally a year later, uh, two years later, two years later, I found myself here in Franklin. <clears throat> I was 18 years old, driving around Cool Springs. Uh, looking at the address for Seaboard Lane what? and dropped off a demo that I had from what? my solo record. What year was that? It would have been 98. I was driving around On town.
1: Seaboard Lane? Yeah,
0: yeah. Where And was that Forefront Records? Forefront Records, yeah. I yeah, walked in the front lobby, just a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just from
1: reading liner notes to DC Talk and, and, and all these different artists. How uh, discouraging was it later for you to learn that as soon as you left the door, someone dropped it in the circular file. <laughs> we called the, That's what we called the trash can was the circular well, file. Yeah, we called a file, what, 13? File 13, yeah. we, we Back then, we called it the circular file. Uh, I mean... Well, the irony was oh, that's like... Oh, so, actually kind of sad for Young Mo. Like a decade later, I money. was now a manager
0: um, signing all of my bands to File 13 records because <laughs> <laughs> all the demos that we would get at, you know, GMA week and everything oh. else was just so bad
1: that... Yeah, it was sad because um, it showed kind of a misunderstanding for how the process worked. Let me rephrase that. I don't know that there, it was just the the process was so there was no process. It was very subjective. <clears throat> but guys like me would actually more than the music, even though the music mattered. We were listening to youth pastors who would say, "Man, I don't know if you heard of this band, Cadman's Call," but. We booked them, and like 700 people showed up. Yeah, And you start hearing that enough about the same band, and you get on a plane. Some crowdsourcing. And go see it, yeah. That's where the Third Day guys were. They were like yeah. in, in the southeast in Atlanta. They were good for three to 500 people, no matter what, in 93, 94. I mean, that was Mercy Me's story, too, in
0: in, um, in Texas. Yeah, were right, exactly. Camps, and people were just kept coming and kept coming. And
1: yeah. Yeah. That's the, When I very first met Bart... I was with the Cademan's Call guys. Yeah. Because they were following around the Mercy Me guys. Yeah, no, no, it was the other way around. Mercy Me was following Cademan's Call around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cademans was first. Yeah, because uh the Mercy Me guys, they had this dumpy old silver eagle bus. They probably spent 10 grand on it and then probably spent hundred thousand just trying to keep it running. But they would uh they would show up at Cademan's Call shows. I think I saw them in Tulsa the first no, no, it was in East Texas somewhere. Anyway. But—and and, and the thing was with them back then was, I mean, nobody was looking to sign, you know, a, a, a Texas band with a lead singer who was kind of, you know, a little portly fellow, and um, they weren't young by any means. Um, but that ultimately, when they were signed by Jeff Mosley, that was—by the time they were signed by Jeff Mosley, they actually had, had multiple record labels that were talking to them. But they had worked so hard, they were like, well, I'm not going to give all my money away to this record label, which is why they signed with Jeff, because he gave them the 50-50 deal. Which uh, became affectionately known as the Mercy Me deal, and was the first, and as far as I know, last time that deal was ever offered at I and O. Because, uh, I mean, those boys did well with that, and the record label was like, "Well, that was dumb. We're never going to do that again."
0: So all those early days of <laughs> literally me driving around town, uh, <laughs> making the pitch. And what kind of car was it? Dodge. Oh gosh, man, I don't even remember. Like a, like an old Gremlin. Like I'm I'm trying to think like what a Dayton, my, Ohio car would have been. You know what it was? It was a 1983 blue navy blue four door scooter chevette scooter chevette that scooter super the scooter me, meant that it had four doors it was the, that's the scooter <laughs> it was my grandma's and so that's what we drove man and so when audio adrenaline came out with a record and one of their the first song on the record was in my chevette
1: oh i remember that song
0: i felt so seen Wait, and loved
1: but that is that the car that they had coming out of the ceiling?
0: Yes, remember on stage in on oh, re- tour. Oh, I remember because they dropped I... it down from Yes. From from the ceiling and onto the, the stage. So that's what I'm saying. Like that what? was my first car. So when Audio oh, Adrenaline, gosh. who was one of my favorite bands, is touring the country with a Chevette and dropping it on stage during a concert, I felt so loved and seen.
1: Let me tell you how I felt. I felt hijacked because, like, someone has to pay. Like, we're going to have to pay the for that. The
0: logistics of that yeah. were ridiculous.
1: Yeah, like, you're, you're talking to a theater and, like, okay, let me, let's talk about, can we drop a car from the ceiling on your stage? Like, yeah, yeah, you got unions putting, you oh, know, union workers
0: having to figure oh, it out and they're not happy about it. That was a tour that
1: we actually, it went well. Like, they sold a lot of tickets, and at the end. Do you remember who was on that tour? What did I do? Okay, uh, let me think. Was it Ray's? Nope.
0: 1998. It was uh, Audio Adrenaline Headline with um, Jennifer Knapp. Oh, how could, oh, I know how exactly how I could forget W's. that. And the W's. I know how I could forget that. The W's comment. Anyways, my point is to this, sharing all of this, this intro. No wonder I'm triggered. Nothing is wasted. (laughs) Nothing has been wasted. I don't know. The Chevette was wasted. No, man. (laughs) It, It got me to college. Every day yeah. and back.
1: Uh well it was wasted for audio adrenaline, man. There's not a person was that, for them, one yeah. person <laughs> that bought a ticket. Like they're gonna drop I a did. Chevette out of the ceiling, so I'm gonna buy a ticket it now. Spoke I deeply to me. I wasn't gonna buy
0: a ticket, but now I'm gonna buy the ticket. Nothing is wasted. Like all those experiences, all of the heartbreak, all of the the pursuit, the all of the no's all of the uh the experiences of that season of my life and I think I can speak for you as well and th- those that season in your life was not wasted and it helps direct and guide and inform um, where we are today yeah. with conduit church even in our relationship. it's, it's how we met
1: mm-hmm. 18 years ago yeah yeah that's um so the thing about John 6 which we dove into last Sunday for the first time, is when you realize that Jesus had just lost his cousin, very close family, you know, John the Baptist, not only executed, but executed in a humiliating way, head cut off, thrown on a platter, served in a party full of people to please his, uh, you know, wife and stepdaughter. Uh, of, of Herod, you know, his disciple John's disciples had just told Jesus about this. They're they're shook because that wasn't the way they, especially the disciples thought it was going to go. They had just returned from being out on the road for a while, where they're out there praying, laying hands on people, people getting healed. And they get back to Galilee to Tiberius, and they are exhausted. I think it's the Matthew one where they're hungry because nobody they can't even no the people will not leave them alone, so they're hungry. They can't even eat. Jesus throws them in a boat. We're going to go across the sea to where 25,000 people are showing up who are all hungry. And and instead of getting rest, instead of being able to grieve, instead of being able to take some time off, they're right back in the middle of it again, which means Jesus did all that to them on purpose. Like he stretched them and then you don't think you could do anything more. And now I'm going to stretch you some more and threw them right in the middle of it. Today, you know, people be blogging about Jesus being abusive. He wasn't hearing the needs of his staff. And, you know, he's like, I'm going to stretch you further than what you think you can be stretched because you can do more than you think you can do. Yeah, man. It reminds me of being,
0: you know, those artist management days when those shows would come across the table. It's like, okay, we can do this one. We can do this one. Yeah, we we really do need two or three days off. But then the offer comes in for a 25,000 person event. It's like, ah. Guys, you're going to have to get in the bus and drive across the country because this is a big event.
1: Yeah. And you push them. You make hay while the sun shines. (laughs) That's right. You know? Yeah, that was – so my system was, on average, for every 25 shows you booked, you were going to get two of them would cancel. So I would book a tour with more shows than we could do knowing that we would lose a couple of shows and – at the end of the day, it all works, it all washes out, except for when they didn't. I was going to say, that's a risky business. It is risky, and uh, most of the tours I was, you know, after I had done it so long, I, I could you could almost you know, it is you could set your watch by how, how this stuff usually goes. But I do remember a Cutlass tour, it was a thousand foot crutch, I think. I don't remember now, but no, none of the not only none of the shows canceled, so we were doing. I mean, it was like seven days a week for a couple of weeks. And those boys were fried. hard, But, you know, at the end of the tour, uh, every day you're not working on a tour, you are spending money. You're paying for the bus, whether you're touring or not. You're paying for the driver, whether you're doing anything or not. Paying for the crew. So, you know, for us, we tried to, hey, we're going to be out there for 60 days and we're going to work hard for 60 days. And we're going to take time off after this. But in those 60 days, man, you know, we definitely pushed and pushed and pushed. With it, And fortunately, uh, you know, the lead singer of Cutlass was a jock, uh, an athlete, athlete, competitive. Uh uh-huh. So he, he was not, um, he didn't whine nearly as much no. as the arty, uh, the guys. Creatives. yeah, the crazy guy, <laughs> like, oh, I need my time, I need my space, <laughs> <laughs> I need my patchouli oil, my candles. Oh. Um,
0: but that's what the disciples did. It's what Jesus yeah. and the disciples did. So they get to this area and there's 25,000 people there. They're exhausted and the people are hungry and it's time to eat. And, you know, as the story goes, right, <clears throat> you shared on Sunday, there's five loaves and a couple fish that get somehow miraculously spread out amongst 25,000 people. Yeah. Dinner is provided. And then some, there's leftovers. Yeah. 12 baskets. Leftovers. <laughs> do you guys do leftovers? Like we just had Thanksgiving, right? Mm-hmm. Did, I mean, do you guys keep leftovers? You throw it out? Do you, are you still eating Thanksgiving? Yeah, we're done now. But oh yeah, we're
1: we're definitely we're for sure leftover people. Yeah. My wife, it crushes her soul <laughs> to have to throw food away. My kids know it by heart. Like if we if something gets thrown into the uh into the sink after it's been in the fridge too long, uh she will say it out loud every time. And I finally said, Hey, you know what, you can just do the blanket statement now. We know you don't like to throw away food. <laughs> right. So, so you don't have to say it every time. Uh but We, uh, yeah, we, we, when you grow up as poor as we did, like, you don't like throwing anything away if you can avoid it. Yeah. Uh, No. Yeah. Leftovers is definitely a, it's definitely a thing for us as well. No doubt. Yeah. So Jesus miraculously throws and it's, you know, these little barley loaves and these fish, it's not like he had a couple of red fish from the, the Gulf. These were like sardines Yeah, and little, little small loaves. Like this was the kid's lunch. It wasn't like he was running around there. with like <laughs> right. This was enough for one person yeah. and for a kid, no, no less. So it wasn't mm-hmm. a big meal that he was providing for them. And at the end, one of the things that he said that jumped out at me was get every one of these baskets. Make sure that uh, you get all the crumbs, all the broken pieces. Let, let nothing be wasted. And totally jumped out at me because the the, uh, analogous to our lives of how, what you said, like nothing is wasted. Everything. God is brilliant in his way of making sure that the good, the bad, the ugly, none of it is wasted. He's going to use it all. He doesn't waste your pain and he doesn't waste your joy. Yeah. Which brought you to, to three kind of
0: distinct points that all really do tie together. And that is, you know, what Jesus can do to you. In you and through you, and the to you part is the part where you're being stretched. You yeah, know, that's the part where he's pushing you. He's making you stronger and yeah. having to, pushing you to do things that you didn't know you could. I know my 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 boys played high school football, and every year at the beginning of the season, they would bring in a um, like a Navy SEAL, and they would do a Navy SEAL day on the football field. <clears throat> and so dude, How Williamson County is that? Right. <laughs> Middle Tennessee. <laughs> and so us dads would would come and watch from the you know, from the sidelines behind the fence, got to peek through. And the the workouts that they were doing with these boys were ridiculous. Like entire telephone poles that they're carrying with like I don't know how many guys. Like across the football field. I mean, they're they're hoisting tires that are like like tractor tires for, like, a mega tractor. Like, these tires are probably, I don't even know, like 10 feet in diameter, just massive. Hoisting those things across the football field, doing bear crawls and and crab walks, you know, across the football field mm. in 100-degree weather because they always did this in, like, August. Point being is they would always learn that they can do more than they think they can. Yeah. In-
1: the thing about it is that if you, by framing it in that way, the way that Jesus intends it to be it, framing it, then you're not a victim. You know, those boys aren't victims of some abusive Navy SEAL. You know, they are being trained as disciples, so to speak, mm-hmm. that they can push themselves further. And if there's one thing the Navy SEALs, I mean, that they, if you've ever read any uh, anything about their training... You know, it, it is designed to get people to quit. Yeah, because what they need to know is when the when it matters most that you are not going to quit. Yeah, and the <clears throat> the the leading stat for that actually, I learned a lot
0: about this when the boys were going through it. Is eighty percent is the number when you're ready to quit, you're really at eighty percent of your capacity. Mm. Most people, when their body is telling them to shut down, I can't do this anymore. You're actually, like, realistically, physiologically, physically, at an eighty percent. You still have twenty percent in the tank. Wow. And it's so once you kind of get over that hump, yeah. Man, you can do another twenty percent farther than
1: you didn't even know you could. Which is in our if there's one thing in our culture that is. Haunting us now and will continue to haunt us is the softening of our men, especially, but women as well. Um, When everything is, and and I feel like I have to say it because someone's for sure could misunderstand. There are things when you are, where you are, you have been, you are a victim. You have been victimized in this moment. But the minute the gun is away from your head, right? If you're being threatened, whatever. The minute the gun is ahead, away from your head, you're no longer a victim. You were victimized, but by taking it as an um, as an identity that I'm a victim, um, you'll stay in this thing where every, it's every someone else's fault, as opposed to looking at it and saying, you know, what in that moment I couldn't do anything about it, but I'm not there any. I'm not there anymore. So what am I going to learn from this? How am I going to be stronger because of it? And in in the, in our walk with Christ, uh, every, pretty much if you've been around the church for any length of time, at some point, including at Conduit, you're going to have a moment where you have been hurt by somebody. Just because we're humans, we're we're stumbling towards redemption together. But if you make that your identity, the church hurt, church too, all those things, if that becomes your identity, uh, it, 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 you, you're you're literally trapping yourself into this eternal, um victim moment when you get your whole life ahead of you and to to look at the way that jesus had led his disciples i mean he knew we're going to talk about it this week but he you know he, they're about to get back in the boat he's going to send them into a storm like in matthew 14 he commanded them get in the boat like he knew there was a storm coming yeah,
0: he's pushing them
1: yeah he wasn't abusing them he's he pushing was pushing them again exactly right they they've got food now but they're still tired trying to get away from this crowd that's following jesus around So what he does to them is necessary because of what they were going to be experiencing later. And there's something to that. The truth of if you have been tested, and I know people that have been tested way, way more than I have, there's something about that in the test that you're in now that it's preparing you for something for the future. Like The the greater the test, the greater your impact is on on, on society, that Jesus is trusting you enough with something in the future that he's got to test you enough now so that you're ready for it. And these disciples were going to have many long nights where they were alone, many long nights where they were hungry, many long nights where they were being pushed beyond. And without them, we would not have the church today. But Jesus needed to do that to them so that he could change, you know, what was in them, right, their faith and their strength so that he could then do through them what he wanted to do in this world, which is what he wants for all of us. He's he's inviting us to participate in this kingdom on earth, not sit and let us watch him do it. So when he tells them to, you know, divide up the people, I'm going to pass out the bread and loaves to you, uh, he's inviting them in the same way he invites us to participate in what he wants to do through us in, in society. You have more to give. There's more reward for you, more fulfillment for you. What Jesus can
0: do in you, uh, <clears throat> to me, speaks to just a change of heart, right? So Jesus can do to you, it stretches you, it pushes you, it allows you to be stronger in your faith. And in you is really just a change of heart. That's kind of what my takeaway was from that is it's a heart change that it's inside of you. It's, a, it's an awakening and an awareness of, of who we are and him in us allows us to do so much more. It's really just removing our pride and, and leading a humble, yeah. uh, leading with humility.
1: Yeah, and, and leaning us back on him because he, in verse uh Six. He's asking Philip, you know, where are we going to buy bread for this? Like, where, how are we going to feed all these people? And it, he's probably asking Philip because he, they're in Philip's town, his hometown of Bethsaida. So it'd be like they went, you know, for me they went to Superior, Nebraska. Where are you going to buy this much food? And and it says here though that, but Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He was testing Philip. And what you when you start asking questions like that you know, Philip's thinking out loud, you can actually kind of feel his faith being stretched here. But how are we going to do this again? How are we going to, like, he's changing him from the inside out. And, you know, that's why Jesus is doing stuff to us. And then letting us come to the realization in the same way that, you know, if you took, I don't know. If you took, a, did you take a language class in high school? Yeah, I took a couple of years of Spanish. Yeah, can you speak Spanish now? Uh, no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very little. Un poquito. <laughs> yeah. because you learn to take a test to pass the test, That's to answer right. the questions. That's right. The only way to really learn a language is to engulf your and just immerse yourself mm-hmm. in the language itself. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, by immersing themselves in this, the, he's teaching them the language of faith. So good. They're going to speak it fluently when this is all said and done. They could, on paper, they could, you know, probably answer the questions. But now it's in their hearts that they're answering the questions. Yeah. So he, it's Jesus,
0: um, work what he can do to us, in us, and then through us. I mean, it is the result of that heart change, right? It's like, okay, now we can be the hands. In the feet of Jesus, it's it's this overused, perhaps cliche phrase, but it's true that we uh, get the opportunity to um, execute His plans, to fulfill the ministry of the gospel, to um, to serve the kingdom and serve Him um, through us. Like that's that's yeah. that's a pretty awesome opportunity.
1: Yeah, I mean, the kindness of God in this is is something that it's easy to take for granted, but I mean Jesus could have made the food miraculously appear in front of every person without having to do anything. Yeah. But he invites the disciples to work with him on it. So now they're a part of it. Like that's that's huge for us. We get to feed people in Haiti. We get to feed people in Asia or free slaves. Like that's he has invited us to be a part of it. Uh to, to do things that matter, that there's purpose involved with it. Imagine if the only thing you did was, I believe, and now I follow him around while he does all the work.
0: Like, Yeah, there's no skin in the game. There's no purpose and meaning. Yeah. Well, You have no reason <clears throat> to
1: belong or matter. Yeah, I mean, think of the you know the, your football analogy. If the coach's job was just to tell the boys how to play football and then the coach goes out there and wins the game, plays it all by himself yeah. with other coaches, like... What even? That's such a lame way to for sport. Like, it doesn't do anything, and it's, there's, it's no different in our faith. Like, so it would be so lame if that was the way that our faith was to play out. Was to just watch Jesus do all the the stuff instead of Him saying, hey, "You know, you get to be a part of this. You are the hands and feet." That's what it means to be that. He's invited us to be His representation here on earth. You know, I had a conversation with somebody this week that
0: um, was kind of struggling with this idea. Because of kind of the crazy that's happening in the world, the confusion and some of the fear that they were feeling around everything and fear for their children and their grandchildren and, um, didn't like hearing or having conversations about, um, the hard topics of the world. And and um, just kind of kept going back to, well, the Lord will protect us. The Lord will give us peace. The Lord will, you know, God will provide for us and God will protect us from these things, which is true. But how he does that is through us. Mm-hmm. It's through us um, standing on the front lines and giving a voice to the voiceless. And it's through us that um, pushes through maybe you know governmental boundaries to meet or not meet and we come together and meet um it was some of the conversation was regarding some of that and um it was just this reminder for this person that i mean the lord uses us to do the will of the father and it's not this hands-off approach that well the the lord will just take care of it
1: yeah the the history of god working on earth is him Working through humans to do His will, 100%. He can and and could miraculously change everything, but He invites us to be a part of it. And so, when it comes to uh, our, our our local involvement in the, in the community, our, uh, you know, it, which is being viewed by so many as what they call it's it's so funny the the idea right now that is so frustrating to me is when someone has an a, an opposite idea of what you have, it's not, it's not good enough to just debate my idea. They have to shame my ideas to make it feel like it's not credible. So when I talk about, you know, Christians running for school board, Christians being involved in, in local government, there's an entire population out there that refers to that as, quote, Christian nationalism, unquote, with a sneer and condescension to it. You, you know, like uh, I just read that in Redding, California right now that the majority of the city council there's five seats, three of them are folks from Bethel Redding Church. Oh wow. And of course that's being cast as like oh this is so awful that they now control the the the, the city, you know. And by the way, by fellow Christians that I've I've read online, you know, Marty Duran and Julie Royce and they sort of wrinkle their their nose and they sneer at it. And you know, like with a sense of condescension, but if you take a step back, going, well, why wouldn't we do that? Like, why wouldn't I want someone who loves Jesus, someone who loves justice, someone who loves you know good, to be making decisions for us? That's it's utter nonsense to sneer at that. Um, you know, have people abused power in the past? Yeah, one hundred percent. But they abuse power whether they're Republican or Democrat or Christian or non-Christian. So I got a better shot when it's a Christian than when it's not. At least there's a worldview that we could agree on of right and wrong and good and evil. And, uh, you know, for us, you know, God using us in those ways, as long as our government is a representative government, why wouldn't we? You know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they weren't even a representative government, but those guys found their way into influence government, you know. We have to remember on our side that it doesn't mean it's going to be a cakewalk. It doesn't mean, it, you know, we should expect to be persecuted. We should expect to be executed, some of us, in it. But as long as we have that right to be involved with it, man, by all means, we should stand up and be counted.
0: We had some friends from Canada down uh, visiting with us this past week. And we got to grab dinner with them on Monday. And, and they were sharing some of their um, struggles and challenges of, of just living regular daily life in, uh, in Canada over the past couple of years and how difficult it's been just to get simple, simple things done, just even get, you know, healthcare for their aging grandparents has just been, uh, almost impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, just because everything, uh, in, in the healthcare world in Canada right now is absolutely 100 to percent dependent upon whether or not you have been vaxxed or unvaxxed. Like, either entering the country or not, um, stepping into a hospital or not, like everything is revolving around that one thing. And um, they were also explaining how the province of Alberta right now is being like the one bulwark of of, um, pushing against everything that's happening and saying, you can come here where we're going to protect your freedoms. Mm. And it's, it's interesting to see, you know, like somebody is standing up. Somebody is trying to do something to slow that down. Yeah. Um, and it's just a reminder here for us too. It's like, okay, there's there. If it's, it's amazing how much we, how quickly we forget how difficult it was a few years ago. Um, just to, just to even gather right here on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. It was difficult. Um, There's still our countries that are still dealing with this. Yeah, including Canada. Including our neighbors to the north. Yeah. um, Of which we have friends that are just on the daily dealing with the complications of, of this environment.
1: And when you take it to Christians, our opportunity to speak up, speak out, just to speak, just to have a voice at the table. I mean, two and a half years ago, three years ago, I would have found myself was in the camp of, you know, let the government be the government, just stay out of our business as a church. We got work to do here. And realizing, man, how monumentally naive that was, that, you know, it's, it's naive to think that we could speak up and not be persecuted, like that's naive, but it's naive to think that. If I say anything that gets me persecuted, then I must have said something wrong, and so I just need to shut up and stay in my lane. Let the government be the government. Um, as long as, long as we have a representation, as long as we have a voice at the table, uh, we want that. We should want that. Like that's uh, in many ways, I think that's why we ended up like in our county, Williamson, probably the most conservative county in the South. I mean, that's. I don't think that's a stretch. And realizing that of the, the school board that we had, the vast majority were coming from a, a progressive, uh, secular worldview. But if you view that – most Christians view the government as its own thing and then, then the church is our thing. So we're so focused on church things that we leave that to someone else. But if you have a secular worldview, the government is the, the source. The government is the provision. The go- So they want to participate in the government stuff. Because that's their main source. So for me, the wake-up call was: the government is not our source, but the government is a source. And to have believers at that table um, with a, a Christian worldview, with a you know right, calling good good and calling evil evil worldview, that's something we, man, I want. I want for my kids. I want for our future. I don't want a drag queen story hour at my local library. I want. If you want to be a drag queen, go be a drag queen. Don't mess with my kids. Don't force them into a situation where now I got to have a, a talk before we go to the library. That this, you know, large man dressed as a woman. That this is. I, I just leave them out of it, with it, and, you know, Christian schools, home schools, is amazing stuff. But not everybody can afford that, and. You know, it's why I and I do believe we need more Christians in our school boards. I need, we need Christians in our schools themselves, as long as those are jobs where you can not violate your own conscience to be there. We need Christians in big tech companies. We've got um, in our own church, we've got several that work for large uh, high-tech companies. I was talking to um, Chris Roman yesterday. He works for uh, Salesforce. A good, godly man. We need those voices in there, you know? It's hard to work in a a company like that, where your own worldview is is, is, uh, we're tolerant of everybody except you. Um, But he's there, and he's a good, godly man, and we want those kinds of voices in those companies. And if anything, we've seen in the last month uh, with what happened with Twitter, when you don't have any representation at that table, they're controlling the entire narrative of a country. Yeah, I mean, we're we're talking about censorship in a lot of ways.
0: and censorship is not necessarily just stopping you from talking; it's correcting the narrative, um, which is a little deeper. And so, yeah, that's a good way to say that. Yeah, and unpack that. Well, I mean, <clears throat> it's one thing to um, to keep you from talking um, about a topic or uh, any information. It's another layer deeper to uh, to change the narrative of what's being said interesting
1: and from the social media companies they weren't just stopping one view they were promoting another view correct actively promoting it yeah and that's 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 worse
0: um and, and that's normal right now um you know for those that are paying any attention i i don't i don't know uh, how how much of this is getting mainstream um, attention. Probably not much if you if you listen to just standard um, corporate news. Um, but the Twitter files, you know, is this week where, um, you know, Elon is now the owner of Twitter, if those don't know that, Elon Musk. And uh, he's cleaning house. And so one of the ways they're cleaning house is he's um, kind of teamed up with a couple of independent journalists that I, I think you can say that pretty fairly that they're they're independent they're not they're just reporting the news that, which is hard to find guys that are actually doing that and girls that are doing that but Taibbi Matt Taibbi and um, Barry Weiss Barry Weiss she was fired from the New York Times that's right
1: and uh, they've been exposing
0: they've been exposing kind of uh, the narratives that have come out of Twitter, those things that have been suppressed, those things that have been uh, promoted regarding specifically the uh, Hunter Biden laptop story, which has then spun into all things that they've been either suppressing or promoting Mm -hmm. from, you know, COVID narratives all the way down um, over the past few years. And, uh, And so it's this conversation is illuminating again around censorship and what should and shouldn't be talked about. And even more than that, like I mentioned a minute ago, the narrative that's being told Mm -hmm. uh, that influences entire
1: countries. From the top down, Twitter, Facebook, they really are a public square of where ideas are. Disseminated into into culture right now, and in in the olden days, in the Walter Cronkite days, a, a news reporter, a journalist, reported what happened. Um, they didn't, and they were all. They, for, I mean, to be clear, they were all liberal even then, and there was still a narrative even then, but. They at least pretended to not tell us how to feel about. And these days, it's it's why I get so angry when I see somebody like Julie Royce who fancies herself as a journalist attacking, you know, c- cleansing the church. When you use adjectives in your headline, you are no longer a journalist. You are an op-ed piece. So when a pastor is something, she'll use words like disgraced pastor or embattled pastor, like disgraced by who embattled by like you are that's not a fact that's an accusation and when your accusation when your narrative is not christ-like which is what the vast majority of legacy and corporate media are doing i mean the reason that why taibi has been so i he wrote a book called hate inc about i don't know six years ago i've recommended it to so many people he was one of my favorite Rolling Stone writers over the years. His ability to turn a phrase. Now, as far as I could tell, that guy's. I don't know if he's even married. He probably never. He's like socially awkward, like most really great writers. When you put him on an interview, you're like, ooh, I, I, you know, it's like Alex berenson great writer, but I don't want to hear you talk. Like you're you're too nerdy. <laughs> but Davey's a giant nerd and was nerdy enough to call out the corporate media for what it was, which and that he was equal opportunity between Rachel Maddow or Bill O'Reilly. Their business model now is about making you angry or making you sad, and you click on their stuff that way. And what Twitter did was move the needle in a direction of of a very specific narrative. had nothing to do with whether it was true or false. It was whether it supported the, the... the ultimate, and you know, literally emails from the White House saying you need to take care of this or take care of that, and then somebody inside saying yep, got it, taken it, handled, deleted. Like, That's banana republic stuff. Like, that's 100% uh, what would happen in Venezuela or in China. The only difference in China is they don't pretend they don't own the media. But here, the pretend was uh, we don't own it.
0: Well, this also gets down to a um, another topic, along the same lines. But those that are interested, just Google search, read about Operation Mockingbird. Okay, so Operation Mockingbird came to life in the fifties, and it was a um, it was a CIA operation where they were recruiting American journalists um, to write. Basically, fake news like propaganda pieces, very well known, very well, very much discussed um, over the years of what the impact of Operation Mockingbird was, and so it's led to this. This is where you know fake news came from, like the phrase yeah. like, "fake news" um, is because that was an actual thing mm-hmm. to help guide the narrative and the storyline of of current events, especially you know within the intelligence agency of what was happening in our country. Operation Mockingbird. And so, of course, they're saying hmm. that, you know, that no longer exists and that that operation has been shut down for years, <laughs> which is clearly not the case if anybody's paying any attention. Um, but the fact is, is like we're up against a lot of information, misinformation, disinformation. Um, and there's another phrase out there called malinformation um, that we're constantly like been... Being bombarded with all of these things yeah. and using discernment um, to find the truth is it just takes a lot of work.
1: I will say that one of the benefits of the last couple of years that uh, journalists who are still trying to be journalists, which most are actually not Christians, they do still exist. And because of the lack of, uh, you know, so Barry Weiss was fired from, you know, New York Times, Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept, which is what he, the paper he founded, because they wanted to report truth. And so they're out there. I mean, I just read that Weiss, she's got 250,000 subscribers now to her Substack page. Wow. It's it's incredible. And, and it's why, you know, the legacy media guys are just wigging out because... Like when that story was released last week by Taibi, you know, the, the, the mainstream folks, the, the corporate folks were, ah, it's a big nothing burger, just confirming what we already knew, which is that, you know, it's really hard to, to tell what's true and false. Like, like, no, that's not at all what it is. Like, but, that, but that's the narrative that they're spinning with it because it is an attack and an affront against them. And the reason why he had to go with a guy like Matt Taibbi to leak this stuff too was because these other people weren't going to report it. I mean, Michael Avenatti was just sentenced to 14 years of extra prison from what he already had and CBS, NBC, the corporate media folks have not said a word about it. You know, they're the guy. They gave this guy the platform they gave him and he was a lying, you know, scam artist from 20 years ago. He's been a scam artist the whole time. There's not brand new information, but they're not going to say anything about it because controlling the narrative also controls like when, you know, somebody they, 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 Platform that they shouldn't have platformed, they're not going to admit they're wrong. Uh, and to hear them wringing their hands right now, even that, you know, uh, I mean, I, I've taken a certain amount of pleasure, if I'm being honest, Schadenfreude, and probably not a very good place in my heart, of all the layoffs that are coming at Washington Post and CNN and the New York Times, and I'm taking pleasure in it because it means their business model is still failing. People like me no longer subscribe. I'm no longer. I do what I dead level best to not click on a link because I don't want to give them the satisfaction of the the click. And you know, I'm sure that you know that doesn't totally change it, but uh, but but they are in you know in a battle for survival right now, and they're all wringing their hands like, how can this, the republic survive without journalists? And that's a great question. Because we don't have very many journalists, there, uh, what's going on at CNN? That's not journalism. That's narrative, and and it's the same as in, in Fox News. Like there's a there's a narrative that's being told there. Um, there are a few places out there. It's funny to say uh, this out loud, but I mean the folks at Daily Wire. You know, I, I was I was hesitant at first because I thought, okay, this is just another Fox News. You know, you know, click it and lick it. And we get, you know, we get the ticket. Um, and there's some of that, I'm sure, in any organization. But they've at least done a really good job of, of telling what's going on. There, there are sources of news available that are telling you the news on the conservative and, and more progressive side. But we've got to be using discernment wherever we're getting this information from. And by the way, nothing wasted. I, I've said it and I believe it that the, the question that everybody wants is what is – true. What is truth? And we're, you know, spoiler alert, John 10, we're going to be there eventually. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. You know, I think that the next revival our country is going to see is going to be one born out of a search for, for truth, that there has to be some line somewhere that's true. And Jesus is that for us. So what's happening right now, this dearth of truth, this famine of truth, people are starving for truth.
0: It was one of the catalysts for why we wanted to start this podcast, to be honest. It was um, just to to have an outlet to talk about things that are happening in the world, some current events, in light of our weekly teaching, Mm -hmm. in light of scripture, in light of the truth. Um, so that we can you know have kind of a bit of a forum that we can say what we want to say and talk about what we want to talk about and teach what we want to teach um, again through through the lens of um, a biblical worldview. Hmm. And um, this being our 99th episode, I feel like've we've, we've tried to stay on track to do just that yeah. uh, over the past couple of years now. And you know, bring bring clarity to confu- to confusion. You know, there's a lot of confusion out there. I mean, click pick any storyline in the news, um, and you're gonna have confusion around it. And so, we want to be able to try to bring a little bit of clarity to that each week, and and tie it into our sermon series. Which what's beautiful about that is the, it's the living word. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is these are these are stories from you know a couple thousand years ago. Yeah, that. Um, of which these biblical principles remain true Mm -hmm. and they are a standard for us to follow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of this passage, we were at verse 15, John six, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They were even then looking for Jesus to solve their political government problems. And Jesus We'll eventually do that. Isaiah tells us that the government will be upon his shoulders when, the, when the, the kingdom fully comes to earth. But in the meantime, we get to be a part of that. We, we get to be the ones that are speaking into, I mean, John the Baptist, you know, we opened up with the story, but you know, it's worth mentioning that it was John the Baptist who was executed because he told Herod, you can't live like this. You are living in sin. You know, there's this idea, and I've heard it, I've been told it. We've It's been suggested to us that, you know, sinners are going to sin, so you shouldn't even talk about it. Just let them. Um, John the Baptist did not get that memo, did not read that blog, clearly didn't get that tweet um, from Russell Moore or whoever was tweeting it. Um, he got himself killed doing it, and we may find ourselves in the same kinds of situations. But that's a sign that we're on the right track, uh, not a sign that we should shut up. You know, um, we were talking about it before we started recording, but, you know, Kirk Cameron's new book about kids. I mean, it was a brilliant strategy. I don't know whose idea. It was probably Kirk's. Going to the exact same libraries that were having the drag queen story hours and offering, I, I want to come read from my book as a child, a children's book. All 50 of them turned him down and said, you can't come here. Like, we need to know that. Like, there's a narrative out there that's driving against it. And so he's not, I mean, he's going to get... I'm sure Twitter's going to melt down. They're going to be crucifying him for, you know, being too. And 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 what makes me the most angry is when I see fellow Christians doing that to him. It just makes me furious, and sad, because it's that's a smart thing to do to say, hey, look, there's a narrative here to to counter that narrative with what this is and Jesus. It isn't that Jesus didn't want us just because he didn't want to become a king. That doesn't mean we all have to sit back and shut up and because he didn't do it and then we shouldn't talk about, now, obviously by force, none of us are talking about that at all in our representative government. We don't have to do it by force. We just get to do it by courage and by speaking. Um, and all of us should, should be a part of that. I'm not saying that you start filling up all your, your social media timelines with sentences that are in all caps. We've got to do it in love. It's truth and love. And at the same time, Getting to speak up on behalf of what is true is a privilege all of us get to do. You know, we, you know, we shouldn't let everyone else do the heavy lifting for us. now oh, very good. Those maybe interested
0: in in Kirk's new children's book. <laughs> it's called As You Grow. He just launched a new children's book, and he uh, his his publisher had reached out to fifty plus public libraries, and all fifty at this point have have said no that they would not welcome uh-huh. him in to read in the um, quote unquote. The
1: messaging of the book does not align. Wow! So I, this, I, I guess I could say this. He, Kirk just texted me.
0: <laughs> no way!
1: <laughs> he, he sent me. A, he sent me a Matt Walsh. I love it. Tweet that. Um, so the Fox News report. Matt Walsh retweeting it. Uh, so the, the headline is: Kirk Cameron has denied a Story Hour slot by public libraries for his new faith-based kids book. Matt Walsh's. Retweet is, if only he was dressed in women's underwear and reading a book about sexuality for five-year-olds, then he'd have libraries lining up to host him. That's incredible. Yeah, and it's sad because he's actually true. Like, obviously, those 50, you know, libraries were doing that before. So, you know, for us, I mean, could I be wrong about this? Yeah, absolutely, I could be wrong. But I've got to believe that for us speaking up in, in the culture that we're in right now, even if we lose... The cultural narrative, man, I've got kids and I'm about to have grandkids. You've got a grandbaby. I don't want them looking at me 20 years from now going, man, if you guys would have just spoke up. Yeah. Well, yeah. You said something. What have you done to us? Yeah, know? What is this world we've left for them? I'm not interested in that. And I don't think Jesus meant it to be that way. I know that other cultures throughout history that, you know, cult- great cultures rise and fall. I understand all of that. And I know how history speaks. And I know that one of the main ways that those cultures have always fallen is that good people didn't say anything. And, you know, I'd like to be at least a part of the cultural experiment that what happens if good people at least still spoke up uh, and not go down, you know, without a fight, at least. Yeah. Well, it's
0: good to be back in the saddle. It's been a few weeks and um, we'll be here next week. That is the plan. We're continuing through our sermon series in the book of John uh, we'll be in chapter six. If you've not been a part of any of these yet, you can always go back and find them. You can you can find the teachings on the podcast, or if you want to watch them, uh, watch the teachings from Sunday, you can always go to our YouTube channel. We don't talk about that all the time, but if you just go to our YouTube and search Conduit Church, you'll find it. You can watch and worship from there as well. And we do stream each and every Sunday at 9 a.m. Look forward to being with you again next week.